Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and I actually can't believe it's episode 49. We're so close now to the big 5-0 and this is meant to be a bit of a side project. As you know, my other podcast, Skip to the End, is the bi-weekly movie podcast and for some reason now Mark and Me has become a bi-weekly podcast filling in that nice gap that Skip to the End leaves every other week. So it's been very busy but while the episodes keep coming I'm going to keep recording and I'm going to keep releasing them all. So if you'd listened to the episode only one week ago I was joined by Brad Moore the upcoming actor who started his acting life a little late and the feedback has been fantastic and that's all I can ask for you know. People are tuning in now for the less known names as well as the big big celebrities and I I'm very grateful for that and that's what I've kind of worked for and it's yeah it may have taken nearly 50 episodes but it's nice that people are tuning in for everyday people and like I said not just those huge huge names that draw people's attention. So on today's episode I'm going to be talking to the director of Gloves Off Steve Nesbitt and I'm absolutely thrilled that he's joined me today because he's only actually got five films under his belt and I first saw North vs South and most recently I saw Gloves Off and I think this guy has a, a huge, huge talent. And he actually began his career in wildlife photography. So then to move into actual cinematography and directing, I think it's a huge, huge jump. But he's done it absolutely seamlessly. And honestly, when you see Gloves Off, some of the choreography and some of the fight scenes that you see, especially in the boxing ring itself, is unbelievable and up there with some of the best. And I think he's got a huge future ahead of him and I'm excited that he's on today's show. Before I get into that, I do want to thank everyone that listened to the Brad Moore episode. He's retweeted it, he's been reading all the comments and he's blown away by the response and so am I. So thank you all for taking the time to listen. But let's get into today's episode. So here's me talking to Steve Nesbitt, the director of the film Gloves Off. So, Steve, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Very, very welcome. It's lovely to be here. I've done a bit of research into your background and realised that you used to do a lot of photography, especially in wildlife. Before that, was there a time in your life that you knew you wanted to be the man with a camera in your hand? I did, but it was never in my universe. I mean, I, I grew up in an incredibly rural part of the country and, um, and, and into a, a, a family where your aspiration would be just to get a job, leave school at you know, earliest possible opportunity and get a job. Um, so, you know, in the sort of vein of Plato's cave, that, that, that was my influence. There was never any sort of ambition to do anything other than be employed when I left school. But um, throughout my school career, I was able to write stories and um, was, you know, I, I, I'd entered a few, or teachers had entered a few competitions with little bits and pieces that I'd written. And they, although they were sort of incredibly enthusiastic about it, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't particularly, um, you know, as I said, because I didn't really understand that world or think it even existed. Um, however, my diet of particularly comedy and horror sort of was drawn to the extreme genres when I was growing up was absolutely insatiable. I mean, I loved any television and um, film comedy and in a time where there was um, non-linear editing and, and digital effects and so on. Um, one of the things I liked to do best when I was growing up and playing around as a child was to create special effects for myself. And so I would learn, I'd get science magazines to learn how the effects for Indiana Jones was done at the oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark were done and this kind of thing because they were all cutting edge. And I suppose in you know in doing 
doing those things and enjoying and sort of understanding um, rules of drama and all that kind of thing, it just sort of happened organically. And it wasn't until later on that I actually started to learn about lens craft. But I think the storytelling came before, before camera work did, really. So it sounds like you're a big fan of the practical effects. I mean, one of my favourite films is John Carpenter's The Thing, and I always look at that as mm. how, how well it was done, and it always looks a lot better than CGI. Um, is that something you're a big fan of? Absolutely right. It's the, the problem we have, well, we have many problems with cinema these days, but one of the biggest problems I have with cinema these days is such that because we're, we can gorge now on anything that we want, and the digital effects palette means that there is anything that you can imagine can be put on a screen. And whereas it was a visual treat um, to watch, you know, films like Star Wars and, and, all, and all those that required process photography and incredible discipline to make, we don't have that now. And what's happened is we've become a little bit drunk with it. And yeah. that's become, the spectacle, the spectacle has become so easy and the folly at the you know, at the expensive end of filmmaking, the studio end, is that, um, yeah, we'll put some car crashes in and spaceships or whatever it is, the big spectacles, and that'll make this work, but it absolutely doesn't, because combined with, um, particularly using the example of The Thing, and, of course, John Carpenter, who was so... He did, did an amazing apprenticeship with, um, you know, Halloween and all the rest of it before he got onto The Thing, had those skills as a storyteller which were then implemented in practical effects. So you had to have that passion and that addiction to storytelling before, you know, you, you could get to play with the um, the practical effects. And that meant that you put as much love and attention into those two, you know, because they were part of your story. Whereas I do feel now you just get a kind of throttle jockeys almost in post-production, just sprinkling fairy dust on things, and the story is neglected. We don't yeah. love the characters as much as we did. And I think people's attention spans aren't the same. You get these films in a cinema doing well now, an hour and a half. You wouldn't. A lot of people wouldn't dream of doing a three-hour film now and really storytelling. Well, no, I was, well, I'll tell you. I was the last two films I did. I was told absolutely unequivocally, one hour thirty minutes, and that's that. And um, gloves, <laughs> gloves off is a great example because. I actually shot two films. <laughs> Shots were well, such a great ensemble cast, and it was such a great shoot that, you know, when you get that kind of treat, you know, it, it's it, you're a fool if you don't make the most of it. And I just shot and shot and shot and shot. And there's so much improvisation going on, and you know, and I, and I made the most of that. But when it get to when it got to editing, my first director's cut was just shy of three hours long. Wow. Um, yeah, which obviously you know, with trims would still have made it about two and a half hours just to get something palatable. But, um, yeah, the producers, um, the entire production company um, had said to me at that point, you're going to have to get this down to an hour and a half. And I said, well, what about one hour 50? You know, two hours I don't think is unreasonable for a film this size and all the rest of it. An hour and a half or we can't sell it. And that was it. That is the mentality. And, again, that is another problem that we've got with film in Britain not necessarily the duration, but the fact that everybody's trying to work to formula as opposed to doing what's in their heart. Um, and, you know, because of our lack of foothold in the distribution, that is a big, big problem for us here. And it's one of the reasons why um, independent film is Britain, in Britain is, is really struggling. So you talked about, obviously, watching these things as a, a lot younger and kind of recreating them, which is great. And did you have, like, a Super 8 camera or some, you know, what was what was the sort of equipment you were using? <laughs> no, I couldn't afford one. No. Back then, we, 
we had uh, you know very little in my house but what I, what I used to do and it sounds pathetic now is I used to get a an old um, reflex camera and I couldn't record it and I couldn't photograph it but I would just make that event happen so if I got hold of like different types of candles different colors of candles um, melt the wax down and then sort of layer them one on top of the other to something that looked like I don't know sort of a multicolor you remember Morph the yeah uh, yeah the, the, the Play-Doh the yeah. character. I'd make something like that of wax and try and make a you know face out of it or <laughs> whatever and then melt it with a <clears throat> with a uh, a blowtorch yeah and uh, just watch it melt and that was my sort of Nazi officer <laughs> looking into the Ark of the Covenant and uh, unfortunately I couldn't record it for prosperity because we I couldn't afford a a cine camera or a video camera or anything like that but I would just watch it through a lens and pretend that that was on the big screen amazing <laughs> such is the such is the imagination of youth you know but I do but you know the thing is I mean it's yeah it's risible now but um you know necessity is the mother of invention and I do think it forces even now I remember speaking to um uh Mark Boone Jr I don't know if you know him yeah Batman and Sons of Anarchy and stuff and um he was talking about Christopher Nolan and saying um he said that guy works every film like it's a low budget film. He pushes harder. He, you know, he lifts higher and all the rest of it. And and I thought, well, that's wonderful because you know he's making these massive budget films. But I thought that's how it should be as well. I yeah. think For a director to be in that privileged position to be doing such a great job, and it is when it's going, it's just most wonderful experience you should be putting that much effort into it i think if you're not then you should step aside and let somebody else in with a bigger passion than you that's why i've got so much respect for people like peter jackson christopher nolan del toro they still look like they've got the passion and they want to create it using toys but on a scale that's hollywood money yes absolutely i mean i always say to people when when asked because you know as you know incredibly difficult to get anything made it's yeah. just incredible i mean you're more likely to win the lottery than you are to get a film made yeah and and that requires you to dig you know incredibly deep and when people say well how do you get to do that and the answer is i don't i don't think anybody actually knows you just do what you can but what the, the driving impetus i find is that i can't not do it so if somebody was to say tomorrow you know like all your projects are on hold you're not doing anything for a year you have to just sit in that room for a year well what would i do i'd write more scripts and i would you know find ways to make stories happen because i don't know how not to do it you know i can't not tell those stories i can't not be a writer director and you know whatever i may do in life it will always harken back to that you know and it's that addiction and i think if you need that addiction to succeed and those guys who've been incredibly successful they have it you know, they might, they might not be the most fun at a dinner party because <laughs> it'd be quite a dorky conversation, you know, yeah. but, but, um, but that's, you know, that's part of it. That's, that's part of your makeup, you know. When you were then obviously successful and you would start, um, you weren't doing your still photography anymore and you were starting to do films and stuff. One of your big breakout films was North versus South. What was that like then? Cause that's quite a big scale. And was that something, how, how did that come about? Well, it's a strange thing. Um, originally that was a different film and um, the producer I was working with at the time I was two producers actually the original script that I'd written was actually about a, um, a completely different subject it was a thriller where a, uh, a Romani family a gypsy family had moved into an old um, 
uh, like a hamlet in the middle of nowhere that was run by an old landowner. You know, and these places do still exist in the North Yorkshire Moors and the North, York, North Yorkshire Dales and, and so on. And the story was about how this underground um, gambling ring, global gambling ring, were pitting the gypsy children against dogs and televising it for people to bet on around the world. It's kind of like... Um, it's the hostel sort of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Where they, um, but this was all about gambling for hideous people. And the reason I wanted to do that was because of the um, the irony that travelling community is still the only race on earth that it's still okay to hate and say nasty things about and, and all that. And, and um, you know, it's kind of it's a subject close to my heart. And so, um, you know, that, that script was it was quite clever, actually, if I do say so myself. And it was quite an interesting thing. Now, when I took that to the producers and said, shall we make this? They said, oh, yes, fantastic script, but no, <laughs> we won't make it because nobody's interested in um, this kind of thing. They want gangster films. And I said, well, it's just a saturated market. Yeah. You know, there's there's been a thousand um, gangster movies that came after the, um, you know, the... the, the uh, Lockstock, which yeah, you know, was like a renaissance of that genre, if you like, and everybody then tried to copy it. Uh, uh, copy it, sorry, which is tends to be the case, isn't it? But um, that that was that became well. Look, you can make it what you want, but if it's a gangster film, we we will find a market for it, and off you go. So that's what I did, and what I did was, for better or worse, I tried to make it more of a love story than um, than a sort of violent story, and tried to put you know. Um, different a different take on what would what had become in my mind anyway a pretty happy genre just to keep things interesting and you know mixing it up a little bit and some of that got lost in the edit i think because that was a you know i was working with some quite um you know well-respected talent at that time and the editor that i worked with was um very celebrated editor um BAFTA winner, I think, actually, Kim Kim was. So, you know, I had to give over a certain amount of control to the editor and the producers as well there because, you know, they were quite clear, we want to make this for a market. It's not necessarily, you know, uh, you've got to be guided by us. And I went and I took that on board, and that's what I did. Um, but and, and the resulting film, I think, is great. But it would have been, let's say, a little more, a little sloppier. If, yeah. <laughs> if I'd admired it, it was more of a, it was more on the side of the Romeo and Juliet and that relationship than it was, um, you know. But saying that, I'm not making apologies for it at all no. because I think it's a, it's a lovely piece of work. It's very exciting. And all my work is about entertaining. It's not about searching for some higher truth or changing the world. I'm, I'm really not interested. I love that that exists and I love that people do it and I think that's incredibly relevant and, you know, it has its place. But by the same token, I have my place, which is, for your regular working class person to watch something interesting and hopefully comedic on a weekend. That's my job. That's what I see anyway is my job. So during the filming of this, obviously you were working with Brad um, and now he's in your most recent film, which is Gloves Off. Yes. I've been lucky enough to see the film and I think the way that you've got the, the perfect mix of comedy and drama is very well done, which is I think it's a skill because so many people get it wrong uh, and you've got the perfect mix, I think, on this film. 
That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Now, the cast itself is great, and it's a bit of a, like, the best of British comedy. So you've got Ricky Tomlinson, and I absolutely love the royal family. You've got some people yes. from Only Fools and Horses. You've got people yeah. from The Young Ones. And it must be, I, I was saying earlier to Brad, just about how going on set must be like a family of looking around and thinking, this is comedy gold. Literally, this is the best people you could be around. Well, that's why I shot two films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've got, and also a real breadth of characters because, um, you know, well, starting with Ricky, because Ricky's a good friend of mine. He is absolute royalty, national, put intended, national treasure. Yeah. And wherever he goes, and I've, I've been a few um, countries in Europe with Ricky now for various different bits and pieces, and he's recognized everywhere he goes, and never, ever does he turn anybody away. And that's just who he is. And in the green room, well, <laughs> When we would have, so, when we would have the set being prepped, and I would spend time on there prepping the set, making sure everything's okay, and then go and chat to the guys in the green room who were waiting to go on about what we were about to shoot and all that kind of thing, I would have to wait for Rick to finish his anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you would say. Look, we've only got another hour till blah, blah, blah. Hold on a, hold on a minute. And he just he will do that all day every day. And the but the great news there is, um, once you get that onto a set, and you and you can channel that, and you can work with him, you know, uh, as an incredibly talented artist, it's an unlimited tap. You know, you've got a, a bottomless well of brilliance, not as much as we would have liked had made into the film, uh, only because of. Um, you know the way editing works it's a very cruel thing and sometimes if your plot point isn't in the right bit yeah. you have to jettison that which you would like to include in the film it, you know it's just bad luck really but one of the things i've tried to do since as an aside by the way is um, uh i am working on ricky with a number of other things to get more of that you know <laughs> get yeah. more of that essence out but you know so you've got ricky at that end and then you have paul barber who is possibly i mean i, I have never met a a, a more lovely, gentle soul in my life. Paul is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful man, and I absolutely adore him, as does everybody around him. But his deadpan is the most admirable thing in the world. You think, you think you've got, you know, he, he looks at you sort of blankly while you're rehearsing, and, and you think he's not taking this in. It's not going in. What, you know, give me something back, and he'll just nod quietly, and yeah, 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 I've got it, no problem. And then, um, and then on action, he absolutely floors everybody. And and Paul also, I think because he's that way in his nature, he's able to bring out this incredible pathos as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Paul, they're all underrated. You know, you could shoot so much more. But then there's Alexis Sale, who is just bonkers. Yeah. Um, but as a human, he's, you know, incredibly erudite, well-read, um, intelligent human being who could, you know, lose and find me with um, most of his sort of academic knowledge. Um, he's a very, very clever fella, and and yet when you, and again, you know, you call action, and he'll pull his trousers down and show you his ass. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, that, I just think that's brilliant. You can have somebody that's so complex and you know, very, very clever individual who, who will be very happy to make an audience laugh and i think for me that's why comedy is king it's just it, it often gets frowned upon um by sort of more highbrow high you know particularly in film circles and um you know the 
like all the Guardian readers and so on. But if you get it right, I just think it's the most brilliant gift to be able to share with the world. And, and even Denise, to sort of go for the four extremes, if you like, um, says, <laughs> says the most outrageous things for comical effect. And what, what Denise used to like to do was to corpse everybody right before action. So um, the, the call goes when you're about to shoot something. The first assistant director will call um, to turn the camera over and start shooting. And then the sound will say I'm running and I'm at speed and all that sort of thing. So we know we're ready to go. And then there'll be a couple of seconds before he calls action. So that whole process might take five seconds before yeah. you're ready to, to go. In that five seconds, Denise would think of the most excruciatingly, painfully inappropriate thing to say, just in time for the first to shout action, and then everybody would have to recover and play the scene, you know, without corpsing. And honestly, another really intelligent human being, you know, that's kind of really underrated. She had a lot of fun. She was a lot of fun to work with. But again, I think playing the character that she did, she absolutely, you know, she absolutely nailed it. Bang on the money. Really nice to have her around. We haven't seen her on screen for a while either. Um, I, I was kind of—it's nice to see some of these faces back on screen, reminding you why you love them um, so many years ago. Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, is the the, the trend um, at the moment in our sort of social media-based world doesn't really integrate too well with you know the the days of yore because things fall out of fashion. I mean, like everything, you know, things yeah. fall out of fashion. But what I really like. Rather than somebody who, you know, I mean, I can't think of anybody offhand, not that I should probably name anybody anyway, but what I really like about this collection of characters is that they can all make comedy without making anybody a victim. Yeah. So it was never aimed at an individual that is the, that takes all the pratfalls, which is fine, but when I think the entire comedy routine works around that, that being a victim or somebody to take the piss out of or whatever... I don't think that is anywhere near as talented as somebody well, like Ricky Tomlinson who can walk into a room and entertain everybody, you know, at the drop of a hat with no notice. Um, I was recently really lucky to um, work with Johnny Vegas as well, and he did exactly the same thing. Yeah. You can just... It's just natural, you know, uh, isn't it? Yeah, funny bones, we call it, don't we? Yeah. And, and, and there's, no, there's no sort of nastiness to it. And I think a lot of the modern... Let's say it's sound like a bit of a Luddite here, and I don't mean it that way, but I think the modern sort of comedy trend requires some some body to poke fun at. Yeah, there needs you know, to be a victim, say, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, don't think, I don't think that's as nice. No. That's all I can say, really. It has its place. I'm not saying that's terrible, but I, for me, you know, a film like Dubbed Off, which is a family film, um, you don't want that. You don't want to always be, you know, pointing at somebody and and saying that's wrong or whatever it is. It's better if people can subvert the comedy onto themselves or the situation, I think, is wonderful. Like, you know, like Will Ferrell must be the king of that show. Yeah, definitely. At the moment, yeah. So looking forward now that you've done this film, it's out, what's your kind of future looking like? Is there something you want to get involved in, a different genre or people you want to work with? Yeah. <laughs> Massively, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot. Um, the, well, the trouble that we have... Um, as filmmakers now is without going on a big tirade about what's wrong with the film industry um, but to surmise that the British independent film industry is very much on the decline I mean I would be incredibly surprised if anything was being made at all 
after the next sort of two or three years, to be honest. I mean, um, films, low-budget independent films that are getting made now are more commissioned works of art than they are um, an actual commercial product, and that means it's not sustainable, so it'll go. And that means that a lot of people are looking towards television because the production values in television now are, um, you know, pretty much the same as those of cinema yeah look know. at look at netflix and amazon prime right now the amount of exclusives yes. they do to themselves and the scale is just out of this world absolutely incredible so you've got a lot of filmmakers who don't know who've never been in television like me who now think well actually that's probably what i should be doing i should be you know should be looking at television because that's obviously what the future is and, and of course i could make a fantastic job of it because you can you can have repeating characters and so on, which is which is a real privilege yeah. uh, to, to be able to do. So, um, I mean, I've, I've got projects up in the US that that would be film projects, and I'd be very, very happy to do those. But as far as the UK is concerned, I think it's about more about television, really. Um, I've got a couple of projects that I'm sort of partway through. One of them is a, um, a wonderful comedy about um, a woman who... Is raising money to um, start a business. Um, incredibly intelligent woman, but she's got no social airs. And she meets an eccentric investor who challenges her to uh, learn to ride a horse um, at um, to a, to a uh, competition standard in order to get the rest, the remainder of her investment money. And that's the setup, and it's by a wonderful book by Josie King. And um, I've re- I've written a screenplay for that, and I'm about to start packaging that up with the with um, with a view to making that film in the UK. And I've also got another oh, <laughs> really left of centre film that was um, there's a producer I work with a lot. Um, in fact, line produced both North versus South and Gloves Off called Carl Hall. Um, Carl is a very very gifted ideas man. Uh, he doesn't really have the patience to fulfill a whole screenplay because he's, he's he's a very successful line producer and he's working on you know massive projects so i've picked a couple of those off him that i'm developing one of them particularly which can be made it's a very very low budget and would be better for being a low budget which is absolutely hilarious and it revolves around a game show host uh and i can't really go into the details of that one because it's um it's a uh, it's such a novelty I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Um, incredibly funny and, and um, needs a massive star attached to it, even though it's tiny budget. So yeah. um, it's it's something that the, the film appears as a, a live. So it's like a telethon, if you like. So the hour and a half that it's on screen, the majority of that would be an hour-long show, if you see what I mean. So I get it. Yeah. That sounds good and nice and original. It's incredibly original. He pitched that to me, oh, what when we did first um, started um, North versus South? So what's that? That's maybe four years ago or something. And at the time, I remember saying to him, "Just hold on to that because we'll come back to that." And then, and sure enough, we did. It's just, as you said, incredibly original. But it's not original for the sake of being original. It's like it's worth it, you know. And it's incredibly funny. Really takes a swipe at, um, you know, tabloid talk show hosts or tabloid talk shows altogether. Takes yeah. a lovely. Um, you know, satirical swipe at those and of the lynching on social media and all that stuff. So, there, you know, although it's slapstick comedy, it's, it does have a little bit of 
substance to it underneath, which everybody, I think, will, when they see it, will look at themselves and go, yeah, okay, I do a bit of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a- going to do that anymore. <laughs> I'm really excited now, and I'm kind of intrigued on who you'd cast, because that's going to need the right person to carry that. Yeah, um, there, there are a couple of people... Who would be your um, dream? Who would forget forget reality? You could have anyone. Well, the trouble is, if, <laughs> if I could have anyone, it would be more about just working with a certain talent. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have ambitions to work with certain talented actors, you know, and I think on that or any other project, I would love to work with Will Ferrell. Yeah. Because I, I think he's the man of a generation, frankly. I think he's just incredibly underrated he and john c Riley, i think together are just wonderful um but i think yeah playing the role of because he's so duplicitous this character is probably in his prime jim carrey yeah he's, he well I, I think he'd be far too busy to be uh, entertaining low budget scripts in the uk at the minute but i think if i could have any if i could have anybody there it would probably be jim carrey you never know it's true you never know i mean you know we've designed it so that you only need one really huge name um, and the rest of the people involved the rest of the characters although there are quite a lot of them they they don't have as much screen time and they don't need to be big names to sell it you just need one and that and that is part of the architecture to get the thing made because what what people don't appreciate is when you go about making a film this is this kind of um, fallacy that um, you just have this great idea and then you make it happen but unfortunately not you have to approach the idea such that some some people will buy into it and the right people will buy into it you can you know get it into distribution and all the rest of it so there is you know it's quite every film that you'll see is quite a contrived thing um i don't think the days are around anymore where you have these sort of auteur directors that could do whatever they want i mean i'm sure if you know robert zemeckis or um, yeah (laughs) spielberg yeah do what they want, but I'm talking about, you know, little old me, I can't do that, I'm afraid I've got to find something that's attractive to, uh, um, you know, to the, the people at the top table. My, my final question for you today is, for those people that are getting into the film industry, um, the more people I speak to, it's it's very varied, this answer, but what advice do you give to those people that want to kind of be a director and get into this business? Because, like you said, it's getting tougher and tougher, and in a few years' time, indie film will be it's going to be tough to get over the line. So what advice do you give to those people? Um, Practically, I would say to those people, um, this is a really boring answer, but it will serve you well. Have an alternative means of income. Yep. So don't don't rely on being a director to pay your bills because... It ain't going to happen. um, It it won't happen, though, for, for, you know, for however, however long. And that is the reason that most people fall out because life gets in the way as we all know so be able to earn money doing something else um and secondly ask yourself truly and honestly am i an addict so that addict that i talked about earlier on if you are not that addict don't do it because it's not worth it there's a lot of easier ways to get by yeah if you are that addict and that is you and i'm describing you that can't leave it alone then don't stop because as Pete Townsend once said, the true artist will do anything to get their stuff seen and they don't care about, you know, whether they're gonna make millions or they're gonna be famous and all that and all that stuff. They're not bothered, they just want their art heard. And it's the same with film directors. Yeah. If that's in you and you want it and it's in your blood, just get it into you know, you've got 
how many mediums now online to be able to, how many platforms rather, to be able to get your stuff there. So even if, you know, the first thing you make, you're never satisfied with anything you make, so keep making. Just keep doing it and have 10 ideas on the go at once and keep going because people will cut you down. People will say, that's crap. Don't do what you're doing, wasting your time. And just learn from it. Don't yeah. do what people tell you to do. Just do your stuff better. So you think that's a boring answer, but it's very real and it's very honest. And I think people that are listening will find that much appreciated, to be honest. Listen, if I, coming where I come from, into a you know impoverished family in the middle of nowhere, northern England, and get to make a few movies and all the rest of it and other wonderful things I've been lucky enough to do. If I can do that, then anybody can. So there it is. And as I said on the start of today's episode, a guest that I was thrilled to have on because I think he has a huge future ahead of him. And yes, it's great to have these massive directors on like Kevin Smith and Neil Blomkamp, etc. But I also like talking to the people that are making a name for themselves in the industry. And people like Tom Payton and the upcoming actors like Mike Beckingham and obviously Steve Nesbitt as a new director... They're the people I love to talk to because they have stories about getting into the industry and it's quite an eye-opener of how much work it takes to actually get into the industry and make a name for yourself. And that's what I want to do more of. And 2019 is already shaping up to be a great year and I've got some incredible interviews to launch the year with. But I did want to end on a high. So as we're at episode 49, I'm not going to give away the next guest on episode 50, but it's a big one and I'm very, very excited And what I want to do is give it to you before Christmas. That's the biggest hint I can give you about when it's coming out. Stay tuned on markandme.com because on there there's my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram and my emails. I'll be dropping hints throughout the week. But yeah, it won't be long now and you'll have episode 50 with you very soon.